I invite you to take your Bibles. You can turn them to Revelation 19 this morning. I mentioned last week that Revelation 19 was going to be a two-part endeavor, and um, this is the second of those parts. Uh, simply put, uh, the, the title of the message is Clarifying the Record. What I'm going to do this morning is it's not as comprehensive a message as, as necessarily it might normally be. Really, this was intended to be a part of last week's message, but it, it was just too much. So I split it off. Um, I, I don't know if it's actually enough to have a full sermon. We might not go quite as long as usual, which would probably not be um, too big of a problem, especially this morning as, as we went a little later with the Lord's table and such. But what I'd like to do as we begin, just as a set of context, before we get into Old Testament uh, prophecy is I'd like to read Revelation 19 to you, and I'm just going to read all 21 verses to remind ourselves of what we talked about last week as we read this record of the Lord's coming, and then what we're going to do is we're going to go to various Old Testament passages that, that speak to this same event, why we believe it speaks to the same event, and then try to put all of these pieces together in a manner that uh, um, gives us an umbrella of clarity, as it were as it relates to Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment. So in Revelation chapter 19, this is not going to be on the screen, I apologize, Um, but you're certainly uh, free to follow along in your Bibles. The Bible tells us this, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders Elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of the mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and is his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at, the, at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he hath a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth out the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls, that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings 
and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. At the beginning of the series, we spent a good amount of time justifying our conviction that God um, still has a plan, not just for the church, but for national Israel. That this does not mean that all Israels, all, all of Israel today or all Israelis of all time have been or are saved throughout history because we know that salvation is by grace through faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And those that follow Orthodox Judaism have overtly rejected the finished work of Jesus Christ. But rather that as we look into prophecy, we find first that the gospel is open to both Jew and Gentile alike today. And that in the culmination of this age, the whole nation will experience a wholesale turning to Jesus as their Messiah. Just as the whole nation experienced a wholesale rejection of Jesus as their Messiah at the Lord's first advent, though simultaneously, there were many in Israel that did believe. So as we walk through various prophecies today, what we're going to find is we're going to find, first off, a, a great deal of culminating evidence as it relates to what we talked about last week, and we'll bring it back into play today, Revelation 14, Revelation 16, the prophecies we've seen and how we believe they correlate to the return of Jesus Christ. We're also going to see the promises throughout of the Gentile world coming to the light of Christ, something which particularly in this season we focus on. And then finally, what we are going to see is we are going to see the promises in the Word of God as it relates to the nation of Israel. And then we're going to try to bring all of that together as we understand the character and the nature of Jesus Christ's second return. And we begin today in Joel 3. We've talked about Joel 3 before. The Bible says this in verses 9 through 13 of Joel 3. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Make up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So we read here in Joel 3 of a situation where God gathers the Gentiles, and this would be the heathens, not uh, the Gentiles coming to his light in this case, but rather the Gentiles coming to judgment in a valley. And he, he, as, as he gives this prophecy, he says explicitly in verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And this is important because as we see all of the promises of God to the faithful, he speaks of a time, and we'll talk about it in the weeks to come when we get into the millennial kingdom, when all of the plowshares, well, all of the swords will be 
beaten into plowshares, right? And all of the swords into pruning hooks. And so we see a reverse idea here that God says, this is not yet a time of peace. This is a time of war. And he's warning the Gentile nations, the heathen, that there's a time of war coming where he will judge them in the valley of Jehoshaphat. That he will, that there in the valley of Jehoshaphat, he will judge the heathen round about. Now we have talked regularly in Revelation already about the valley that is adjacent to the valley of Megiddo. Now Megiddo is not a valley. Megiddo is a city, but that city uh, uh, sits in the valley, the valley of Jezreel. And uh, we've come to know that valley as the valley of Armageddon or Harmageddon, which is the Mount of Megiddo, seeing that Megiddo sits on the edge of that valley. Here we find a different valley, and this valley is the valley of Jehoshaphat. This is also called the Kidron Valley, and this is the valley that is just outside of the eastern gate in Jerusalem. And so you have Jerusalem proper and, and it is surrounded by various valleys. The valley in front of it, the Kidron Valley, is the valley, generally speaking, that we would understand to be the valley of Jehoshaphat. Some say that it also extends down below, but uh, that's where we start to mix with the valley of Gehenna, which was the valley that was generally understood to be south-southwest of the city. So this valley, just outside of Jerusalem to the east, between Mount Zion and Mount Olivet, is the valley where God says he would judge the heathen roundabout. So we now pair the judgment of the Gentiles to two different valleys, and we say, well, maybe this is an entirely different instance. And here's the problem with that. As we looked in Joel chapter 2, if you recall back early in our early days, we recognized that there were signs and activities in Joel chapter 2 that corresponded very directly to the sixth seal and the opening of the sixth seal. That was a long time ago, the opening of the sixth seal. That probably would have been um, in spring, early summer. So that was a long time ago. But we see that in Joel 2. And then as we traced it, we transitioned into Joel 3. And what we found in Joel 3 was events and signs and wonders that correlated very closely to the to to not to the sixth seal, but to the actual coming of the Lord proper as we see it in Matthew, as we see it in Revelation. And so what we find here is we find the valley of Jehoshaphat being paired, not just with the Lord's second coming, but with, in verse 13, this statement, put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And as we see this idea of the sickle being thrust into the earth to harvest the wicked of the earth, we've, we've read this before, haven't we? In Revelation chapter 14. If you recall in Revelation 14, we read this in verses 14 through 20. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the clouds one sat like unto the Son of God, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And that would be the unbelievers being reaped here. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle, and another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the grapes, uh, uh, the grapes are fully, gather the grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle, 
into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood out of the winepress, even under the horse's, horse bridles, in the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. So here we see what we have to regard as a corresponding event. The sickle is thrust in. They are thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God. We see this. We just read in Revelation 19 about the winepress of the wrath of God that Jesus will meet out on the day of his return. We see this, uh, this space of 1,600 furlongs being significantly larger than the Valley of Jehoshaphat, but not all that much larger than the Valley of Jezreel, Megiddo. And so it is in this context and to this end that we believe we see a connection between the valleys of Jezreel and Jehoshaphat and this judgment that we read about in Revelation 14 and that of Revelation 20. To where we've said before, it seems as though Revelation 14 is semi-thematic, looking ahead toward that which is about to come and that is made a reality when Jesus Christ himself returns in Revelation 20, and we read about these things. And then we connected these, recall, with the sixth vial. We had the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments, and finally the vial judgments, and the vial or the bowl judgments. And when that sixth vial was poured out upon the earth, Revelation chapter 16, verse 12 says that the great river Euphrates dried up to make way for the kings of the east to come to the valley of Jezreel, and Jehoshaphat to come into the land that they might be a part of the supper of the great God, which we read about in Revelation 19, where the birds will pick the flesh of, of the dead, the heathen, in the land. And the Bible calls that the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So we read in Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. That would be Satan, and the Antichrist, and the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth, and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together to a place called in the Hebrew tongue Harmageddon. So the destruction is declared in Revelation 14. Just as the fall of Babylon, the great is declared in that chapter, even though we don't read about it until Revelation 17 and 18. In Revelation 16, we read of the sixth seal, the preparation for this, that the, the Euphrates River dries up, the kings of the east, the, the Gentile nations are able to gather into the place that is called in the Hebrew tongue, the mount or the hill of Megiddo, that area surrounding Megiddo, that would be the valley of Jezreel, and it would be no um, difficult thing to believe that it would overflow into the valley of Jehoshaphat, particularly as we combine that with what we just read in Joel about God judging them outside the city. And I have mentioned this valley is, is different from the valley of Jehoshaphat, but with the sheer number of people, we might see them both as being just as important within this great day, the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now we finished in Joel 3 with verse 13. 
as we continue in that chapter, I just gave you the context of what I believe to be Joel 3, 9 through 13, found in Revelation 14 and 16. And then as we carry over into Joel 3, verses 14 through 17, we'll see the return of the Lord proper. So the Bible says this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall be no strangers pass through her anymore. So couched in Joel 3's account of, ju of the judgment of the Lord is the day of his return. That following this proclamation of judgment, the gathering of the people to the valleys of Jehoshaphat, to, to the, the, the place of God's judgment where the sickle will be thrust in and there will be a harvesting of the unbeliever. And the Bible says that in the valley of decision, that's the valley of judgment, that in this place, the Lord will return, uh, given with the sign of the sun and the moon darkening and the stars withdrawing their shining. There will be a darkness. There will be earthquakes. The Lord will roar out of Zion and he will return. Now, the Bible gives us other glimmers of what this might look like. We, of course, have read the Revelation 19 account of the Lord coming on the white horse with his vesture dipped in blood and a name upon it, which no man knew, and then another name on his vesture and on his thigh, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he destroys the, the, the nations with the, the word of his mouth. But we also read about this as we compare with Jesus' teachings in Matthew 24. So in Matthew 24, 27... Through 31, the Bible says this, For as the lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And we've explained that before, the idea that there's going to be a lot of death. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven. Very similar to what we just read about in Joel 3. And the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Also similar. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. The Lord shall roar out of Zion, right? Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So it's a day of reckoning. It's a day of judgment. It's a day where the tribes of the earth mourn because they have rejected him. And then he gathers his elect, those that have believed on him, from the four winds as he gathers them after, as we've seen in the parables before, having already thrust in the sickle, removed the unbelievers, as he had, had already gathered the tares and cast them into the fire, then gathering the wheat into his barn as we've talked about before. This is a culmination message, so I'm sorry for those of you that haven't been here for all of it. If you're a little bit lost, I apologize. They are all online, though. Feel free to listen to them. Now, the same idea is given. As we're continuing to combine prophecy and to see how it all merges together, the same idea is given in Malachi 3 and 4. We read this in Malachi, chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. But who may abide the day of his coming? 
And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. And I will come near to you, uh, to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against the false swearers, and against those that oppre- uh, oppress the hireling in his wages, and widow, and fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. And so we find this promise that in the day of his coming, it will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of purification. It will be a day when the Lord searches the hearts. And it will be a day when he finally sets, us, sets down all of the evil that is in the world and the injustice. Now, there's one more passage I would like to take you to, and that's in Zechariah 14. But before we go there, giving us perhaps a more clear picture of how we might believe the Lord will return. We've seen the images, right? We've seen the Lord uh, upon the cloud. We've seen him upon a white horse. Um, we've seen him as a lion roaring out of Zion. But the, all of these give us a, a metaphorical picture of what his return might look like. Perhaps a literal picture when we think of Revelation 19 and, and, and the Lord coming on a white horse. And yet we have another link in Zechariah 14 that helps us perhaps understand a little bit more of what's going to happen on that day. But before we do so, I'd like us to remember the events of our Lord's ascension because it comes into play as we consider Zechariah 14. So in, in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, Luke, of course, is writing. He had written the treatise of of the book of Luke, and that was the history of Jesus Christ's first advent and his death and his burial and his resurrection. And then as we pick up in the book of Acts, it picks up with Jesus being on the earth for those days just prior to his ascension into heaven. And Jesus ascends into heaven, and we read about that in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, and the Bible tells us this. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. So they're asking, Lord, okay, you've died on the cross. You've risen again. You're here. You've taught us. Now is the time for your kingdom. Now are you going to restore your kingdom to Israel? Now are you going to do what you've promised to the nation? And Jesus says, It's not for you to know that time. Then he says in verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, when they while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them, (coughs) excuse me, in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So the angel tells these witnesses that the Lord will return, and he says that he will return in like manner as they have seen him go. So the return of Jesus, by implication at least, will be similar to his departure. Well, what does this mean? 
One of the things we don't find in the book of Acts, because we find it in the Luke account in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, is that Jesus, before he was carried up into heaven, walked with his disciples, the Bible says, as far as Bethany. Now, Bethany is a city that is east of Jerusalem, and it it sits on the Mount of Olives. It's on the the backside of the Mount of Olives, not the peak, but it sits on the backside of the Mount of Olives, and that is where Bethany is. So he went as far as Bethany, and it was there that he spoke to his disciples about these things, and then he ascended into heaven. So that it is, we find that Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives into heaven. And this corresponds to what we would read about in Ezekiel. I'm sorry, I don't have the particular passage that the glory of the Lord that was in the temple, as as Ezekiel is watching in his vision and as uh, he's seeing sin after sin after sin in Israel, he actually watches the glory of the Lord, which was above the mercy seat in the temple, travel to the threshold of the temple and then travel to the eastern gate and then travel to the Mount of Olives and then ascend up from the Mount of Olives into heaven. And then at the end of Ezekiel, when God is talking about the restoration of his people, we see the glory of the Lord uh, descend again onto the Mount of Olives and then come back into the temple proper. And so the Mount of Olives has this important connection to the Lord, a prophetic connection that we see in Ezekiel. Um, So we, we see that there, but we also see this connection as it relates to Jesus, that Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives and he ascends up into heaven. Now, with all of this background in place, we read Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 9, where the Bible says this, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. All right, so they're gathering together and they're gathering, the Bible says, against Jerusalem. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of the mountain toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains. For the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee, and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light, and it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. So we see this idea that the Lord, is, his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives, that the mountain's going to cleave in two, that, that the, it's going to create a great valley, that the people are going to flee through the valley, and um, that the Lord will deliver his people. That will be in the day when all of the, 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 
the uh, armies of the earth come against Jerusalem and fight against Jerusalem and will begin to destroy Jerusalem, at which point Jesus will return and will fight for them. And then it talks about um, promises that will connect again when we get to Revelation 20 and the millennial kingdom. So we see this deliverance of the Lord and we see how it connects to the Mount of Olives and the, the cleaving in two of the Mount of Olives. Now, the, as we see this deliverance of the Lord, we can connect this to two chapters earlier in Zechariah 12, where the Bible says this, and I'm going to read the entire chapter. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. So we see this time, and this time is said to be a time when there is a siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. So this is again a time when all the people of the earth, the armies of the earth are against Jerusalem, are against Israel, where they have no advocates left, where, 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 the, the, where Jerusalem has become a burdensome stone to the world and there, is, is, there are no advocates left for them. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness, and I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah, and I will smite every horse of the people with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be my strength, in the Lord, uh, uh, shall be my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood, and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah. First, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Judah. And he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David. And the house of David shall be as God as the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn." In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of uh, Hadad-Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart. All the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. So we see in Zechariah 12 uh, several elements of promise here. We're seeing a circumstance whereby Jerusalem has become a tremendous burden to the world where all the world is against them and where the armies of the world gather against them. This is something that we have not yet seen historically where, uh, where the, the nation has had no advocates and where the world itself uh, has come 
against them. And the Bible speaks of a time of tremendous mourning as in the days of the mourning of Hadad-Rimmon. That mourning is found in 2 Kings 23, verse 29. We're not going to go there today. But that was the circumstance where King Josiah, who was a very good king in Israel, went out to fight Pharaoh Necho at Megiddo. And the Bible tells us that he failed, as the Lord said he would, and he died there. And there was a tremendous mourning in the land for the death of their great king, who was, in fact, a good king who loved the Lord. Notice the important connections here, though, in regard to the mourning for the one who had died. In the case of Second Kings, Josiah, in the one that they would look upon he, him whom they have pierced and mourned for him in Zechariah, we see the connections in the New Testament directly to Messiah. And also notice the location. That in the days of Josiah, they mourned for him in the valley of in the valley by Megiddo, at Megiddo. And here we find that there's coming a day where Jesus, as he returns, there will be a battle of the great God at Harmageddon, the Mount of Megiddo. In this we find Josiah and his death to be a type, anti-type relationship to Jesus Christ and his return, whereby the nation will mourn for him. A wholesale mourning of the nation. And we know that it is the nation of Israel because we see so clearly the connections to the tribes of Levi, to the tribes of Judah, to David, to Nathan, to Levi, to Shimei. We see the names of those who are of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is what we taught at the beginning. The fact that God yet has a plan for Israel. And that when Jesus Christ returns to advocate for His people during a time of darkness and in a time of rebellion, in a time where the world will come against the nation one last time, and this time, if not surely for the Lord, if not surely for His grace, they would all be wiped out, as it has been attempted to happen time and time again in history. That the Lord will return, that He will roar out of Zion, that He will advocate for His people, that His people will flee to Him for comfort, that they will look upon Him whom they had pierced. Of course, we know from the account of the crucifixion that Israel said, let the blood of this man be upon our heads and upon the heads of our fathers, I mean, of our children. And so it is that they, the ones who had taken responsibility for the crucifixion of the Lord, will look upon Him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for Him. And they will recognize that He is Messiah. And we connect all of this finally to Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul is speaking directly about what about the nation of Israel. We see in Romans this general organization That in Romans chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Paul is espousing the reality of grace through faith and the distinction between the unbelieving world and the believing world. Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8, Paul says, if we have this thing called grace, what do we do with it? How do we live in it? Chapters 12, 13, and 14 say, what does that mean for me on a daily basis? But then we have this parenthetical, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, we see this hypothetical that says, well, what about the nation of Israel? What about those first people that were called God's chosen people? Have they been cast away? Are they done with? Is God done with them? And Paul says, absolutely not. And he says there is a remnant right now according to the election of grace. 
And there's coming a day where there's going to be more than that. So we read in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 29. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So there is this blindness in the nation of Israel that began with them rejecting their Messiah the first time until the fullness of the, of the Gentile world come into the church. And he says, And so all Israel shall be saved, verse 26, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. So we have this promise, and notice this promise is not to Israel, the covenant name of Israel, but to the bloodline, the non-covenant name, Jacob, that God would turn the ungodliness away from Jacob, and, and thus his sons, and they would receive him. This is what we read about in Zechariah 12, when they look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him. This is what we read about in Joel, as the Lord comes back for his, for, for, to, to advocate for his own, and he judges the nations. This is what we read about in Zechariah 14. This is what we read about in Revelation 19. We read about God returning for his own. And of course, this goes all the way back to what we talked about at the beginning as we defended why it is for several sermons, why it is we believe that God still has a plan for Israel and what Israel's part is in the 70th week of Daniel. So the Bible says in verse 28 of Romans 11, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies, but as touching the election, they are beloved. They are enemies for your sakes of the gospel, but they are beloved of the Lord's election. And those of you who have been around for a while know what we talk about when we speak of election. Election nowhere in the Bible speaks explicitly of who is and who is not being saved. Election in the Bible speaks explicitly of purpose, of who has been chosen for a purpose. Israel was a nation elect unto the Lord for the purpose of being rightly related to God so that they might show the world how to be rightly related to God. They failed at their election. There were individuals all throughout the history of Israel who were or who were not saved by faith. Some were in, some were not, some believed, some did not. But there was a national purpose that they would be rightly related to God. They were an elect nation unto the Lord. They failed. God thus transitioned their election to a new group of people, to a group of people who entered into a community by faith called the church. And all who would, by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, accept Jesus as their Savior, would enter into this body called the church, a body that is elect unto the purpose, the same purpose as Israel was, to be rightly related to God, so that they might show the world how to be rightly related to God. Only instead of entering in by birth and circumcision, you enter in by new birth, by grace through faith and the baptism of the Holy Spirit into that election. And so, even though they are enemies of the gospel, they are still those whom God had chosen, and there is still yet a plan for them. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. If God spent the entire Old Testament promising to Israel that he would give them a kingdom, that he would take away their sins, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, that he would, that he would uh, um, make them new, that he would, as we just read in the quote here in Romans, take away the sins and uh, turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. If God has promised that to Jacob, then it must be fulfilled for Jacob. And we see that 
in the return of Jesus Christ. Israel will receive its Messiah in this final generation. And as the nation experienced a wholesale rejection of Messiah in his first advent, so too the nation will experience a wholesale acceptance of their Messiah in the second advent. This does not mean that individuals within the nation will, will not have their own thoughts and ideas, just as in the first advent there were individuals within the nation that believed, but as a whole the nation rejected him. In the same manner, as a whole, the nation will receive him. And as Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. This must happen, because the gifts and the promises of God are without repentance. If he makes a promise... Our faithful God follows through. And that leads us to three simple points of application. I'm not going to spend long on them this morning. This is a unique message in that it's a culmination of of a great amount of teaching. Again, I apologize for those of you that have not been around for that great amount of teaching. But this is a culmination that I hope for those of you that have been following that there were some prophetic dots connected today that help us take what's happening in Revelation, what we've talked about in Revelation 16, the 14, 16, and 19, and connect it directly to what's happening in jo- uh, promises of Joel and Zechariah and Malachi uh, and uh, Ezekiel uh, that I went to, uh, at least by illusion this morning, uh, along with several others that we could have gone to. Um, and Lord willing, those connections will be made as we continue in, in our talks of the Millennial Kingdom. Point number one in our application. The Bible is one book. Today's message, in part, is intended to remind us of the beauty of the agreement of God's Word. As we look at what we studied this morning, we took elements of Joel chapter 3, and we alluded to Joel 2, and we took elements of Zechariah 12 and 14, and we saw how they might interplay with the promises of God as they unfold in Revelation 14, 16, and 19. And we should not just look at that as a ho-hum connection. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years between these writings. We're talking about promises and prophecies of God spanning uh, uh, centuries that converge together in unity and in clarity. Don't let that ever pass by you. That the Word of God is a unified book. It is one book. That the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. That they are not divided. That they cannot be divided. That Jesus did not come to abolish the law. That Jesus did not come in rebellion to the Father and to the Old Testament God. He came in communion with the the God of the Old Testament because He is the God of the Old Testament. And He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. To confirm the law. to, To identify with the law. That's why John the Baptist baptized Him. He says, this must be done, suffer it to be done for righteousness sake. John the Baptist was a Levite, right? His his father had the announcement of his birth in the temple while he was ministering. John was a Levite. He is a representation of everything the Old Testament law stood for. He was a prophet in 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 the manner of Elijah. He was a Levite after the order of the Mosaic law. And Jesus comes and says, I want to be baptized of your message. I'm aligning myself with entirely with your message, the message of the Old Testament prophet. Jesus did not come to st- poke a stick in the eye of the Levitical law. Jesus came in, in, in line with the Levitical law that he might then fulfill the Levitical law to do for us what we simply could not do for ourselves. And praise God for that. The Bible, therefore, is one book. 
We treat it as one book. We allow the Bible to be the best commentary of itself. We go to the Bible to explain the Bible. That's our first line of defense as we seek to understand the unified whole that is the message from beginning to end. It's been almost a year since I preached that unifying two-part message about the big picture. But that's the idea. I might preach it right again at the end of the series to, to now that you have all this information to try to reconnect it. But the Bible has a unified message. It's a unified book and it has a unified theme from beginning to end. We're, we're witnessing the end of that theme in our studies in, in Revelation now. And it is for us to know that the God who inspired the word and in knowing him, we can come to him and in coming to him, he will make himself known to us and we can have a relationship with him and in the ages to come, we can have eternal life. And we study this book because we know it is true, because it does not contradict, because it is one record and we believe it from beginning to end. And that is what we've chosen to do by faith. The Bible is one book. We also understand that the Lord is one God. The God of the Old Testament, as I've mentioned, is the God of the New. And let us remember this point with all gravity. Let us remember that the promises of the Old Testament, that the promises that the Lord gave, that the gifts and the promises of God are without repentance. That God will be faithful. God must be faithful. That if God has established it in the Old Testament, if He has promised it in the Old Testament, if it has not yet come to pass, then it must come to pass. Because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. And then finally, God is unfailingly faithful. One of the amazing and wonderful things about lessons on God's faithfulness is that a lesson for one is a lesson for all. When a person gets up and they give a testimony about how God was faithful to them, it's not just a lesson about how God was faithful to me and helping me in my circumstance. It's a reminder that God is faithful. And that's good for everyone because everyone hears of God's faithfulness and a lesson for one is a lesson for all. Every evidence of God's faithfulness, even in one particular area, or in this case, in one particular people group, as we speak of the nation of Israel, or as we speak of uh, um, the, the culmination of Zechariah and of Joel in relation to Revelation 19, all of these marks are, are marks of the evidence of God's faithfulness in particular areas that remind us of God's faithfulness in every area of life. So if God will be faithful to Israel after all of these years of rebellion and rejection, did you know what that reminds me? It's that God will be faithful to me as well. That God is faithful to his promises to them, so he will be faithful to his promises to me. That if the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, if God will not turn aside from his purposes and he will not turn aside from his promises, not aside from his promise to keep me until the day of redemption, not aside from his promise to provide for my needs, as he says in Matthew 6, not aside from his promise to give the spirit to them that ask it of him, not aside from his promise that he will give wisdom to those who seek it and who ask for it, he will give strength to those that wait upon him. And it is this that we carry with us. It is for this reason that I can read and, and claim Old Testament promises. It is for this reason that I can quote Psalm 37, 25. I have been young and now I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. And know that in the day David wrote that, it was good for him and it's still good for me. 
that God is just as faithful to me as he ever has been. Because God is faithful. Because God is unchanging. Because the God of the Old Testament is not a different God from the New Testament. Because the Word of God in the Old Testament is is continued in the New Testament because it's one book, it's one record inspired by one God, penned by many people but inspired by one God for His people, taught by His Spirit and it's a reminder of His faithfulness. I don't know what you're going through today it's important, even when we do a message that's a little bit more eclectic scattered perhaps, it's not as focused as my normal messages today, even when we do a message uh, um, that, that is perhaps a, a little bit different in, in character like this one today, it's important as we do this that we still draw application and if I can encourage you, I don't know what the Spirit of God is doing in your heart, but if I can encourage you in this way, I don't know what you're going through I don't know what troubles you might be facing, and I don't know how close you are to the end of your rope. I don't know how tired you are. I don't know how weary you are. I don't know how hard you've tried. I don't know how, how many walls you, you've been running into. I don't know if you feel like uh, th- that, 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 that your prayers to God are just hitting the wall and bouncing back down. I don't know those things. But even as we pray today, as we think about the loss of a dear sister in Christ that we've been praying for for some time, And as we pray for those that are healing, and we thank the Lord for His healing, and as we pray for those that need healing, and as we pray for those that need provision, and as we seek for for these things to come to pass, and as we look for the Lord in in the, the day in and day out, we can be reminded, if nothing else this morning, that what we see as we see prophecy unveiling in Revelation 19, 14, 16, and 19, that was promised in Joel and in Zechariah and in Malachi to the, to the seed of, uh, of David, to the root of Jacob, as we see that, what we see is a God who is faithful. Faithful. He was faithful then. He'll be faithful now. He was faithful to them. He'll be faithful to you. It's the same God. We can trust Him. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.